Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, Episode 60. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to present a way of looking at the world that is different from the materialistic conception so many people have today. There is no stone left unturned here at the Cunning of Guys podcast. We explore philosophy, science, and psychology, try to stay as up-to-date as possible with the goal that to show that we have minds, that minds are ultimately connected, that mind and matter form one whole for all time, and that there is purpose in the universe. Not that the end is known, but the continual climb continues for greater freedom and consciousness of spirit. In this particular episode, I will be exploring the philosophy of Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, and I hope to show how his work is brilliantly original and has direct correspondence to so much that we've been talking about here in the podcast regarding Hegel, Jung, Charles Pierce, and so many others. Bergson provides a very unique view of the reality of our existence and what it means to be alive. And specifically in reviewing Bergson's work, I was struck by how much his philosophy concurs with all that I've been saying here for for the last 59 episodes. His concepts of duration, intuition, elan vital, and memory lead us productively into many areas we have covered before, including left brain, right brain dichotomy, Hegel's Vernunft and Verstand, that creativity is inherent in the universe, a la Hegel and Pierce that the core feature of the universe is that it is alive and creative, and that becoming an evolving creative process is the central, fundamental aspect of being itself. Interestingly, Bergson also wrote an important essay in comedy and showed how comedy is an interruption of the real into the autonomous, rigid patterns of daily existence, and I'll be getting into this at the end of the episode as well. But first, some background from my previous work on the problems associated with time, I was not really knowledgeable of his philosophy to any great extent. I uh, was reading him before I began studying Hegel. This is over 10 years ago. And I would hear about Bergson now and then. As I said, I bought one of his books. And I was particularly interested in his notion of duration, but I never really got into it until now in preparing for this episode. So First, let's provide some background on Henri Bergson. He was born in Paris in 1859 to Jewish parents. He originally trained in mathematics, but switched to philosophy. And it's funny, his math teacher was very disappointed with this and said, quote, you could have been a mathematician. You will be a mere philosopher, end quote. His doctoral thesis is where he first outlined his theory of duration. This was published in 1889 under the title Time and Free Will. His next published book was Matter and Memory in 1896. This is followed by the the, um, essays on comedy, Laughter, an essay on the meaning of the comic in 1900. Then the book Creative Evolution in 1907 followed by duration and simultaneity with reference to Einstein's theory in 1922, and later the two sources of morality and religion in 1932, and he passed away in 1941. Now, many feel that in the early 20th century, he became probably the most famous philosopher around the world. William James was a big fan, wrote about him. Bertrand Russell did as well, although 
Russell did take some issue with his notion of intuition, and we're going to be speaking about intuition um, in a moment. In 1913, Berkson spoke at Columbia University in New York City, and he caused actually the first traffic jam ever seen on Broadway. As I said, he was very popular back then. During World War I, he served diplomatic duties for France, working with American President Woodrow Wilson to help form the League of Nations. And during this period, he became actually more famous for his political work than his philosophical work. As I said, he continued to publish, though, even after the war, I mentioned he did the, the book on Einstein. And speaking of his book on Einstein, he actually had the book, uh, he ceased publication of the book because he, he felt that his knowledge of mathematics was not really strong enough to counter Einstein's position adequately. However, he did not mention that his book should not be published in his will. So after he died, the publishers resumed publication of the, of the work on Einstein's theory. Now, Germany conquered France in 1940, and Bergson refused to not identify as a Jew in, in Nazi-controlled France. He also refused special treatment offered him by the puppet French Vichy government, rather than the tough Nazi anti-Semitic regulations. He died uh, a year later and asked his wife to burn all his notes and papers, which he complied with. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy knows that this is one reason that his popularity dropped off, but there were other reasons. After World War II, a whole new group of philosophers emerged, and particularly the existentialists such as Sartre, Merleau-Ponty, Heidegger, and Derrida. These intellectuals had a powerful sway in post-war environment in Europe. However, Bergson's reputation was revitalized by the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, who summed up his admiration in a 1988 book entitled Bergsonism. And now, as an aside, Deleuze was a big critic of Hegel, and this might suggest that Bergson was as well. But some background here. We have discussed Deleuze and the Hegel study group on Facebook for many years and many times, and several people that have studied Deleuze and Hegel note that he does not really represent Hegel adequately. So that's sort of the common view of many of the people in the Hegel study group. And also to counter that, several scholars have noted a clear connection of Bergson to Hegel. Uh, and uh, you can certainly look at Bergson through the lens of Hegel and see how he developed many of Hegel's core concepts. He wasn't working with that intention, but he, he nevertheless did and offered fresh new insight and perspectives on many things that Hegel developed. For example, if you want to read more on this, there's a great paper. It's called Miss Reading Bergson on Time and Life and Matter by Suzanne Gerlach. It was published last year. And I also plan to show how Bergson's genius really incorporates so much of what Hegel had to say and what we've been covering in these podcasts. So let's get into his, his philosophy. First, I want to cover duration. Now, this is a subtle concept, and it's different from what we've talked about here before, but I think you'll, you'll see what, it, what I'm talking about and how it relates to everything we've been covering. And hopefully it'll be somewhat in, easy for you, you all to understand. Bergson believed that time or change was an essential component of the universe and was separate from space. When somebody just looks at time as an abstract measure, they are missing the full picture. Yes, time can be viewed that way. You can look at it as a fourth dimension, as four-dimensional space-time. But 
what that doesn't do is contain the, the flow of the moments that are lived, uh, that relate to each other and that are lived. You can't just break time down into small bits like one of Zeno's paradoxes. It loses any meaning then. For example, I, there are several Zeno paradoxes. We've covered them before. One is that I cannot walk to the other side of the room. I'll never reach the other side of the room because before I get there, I have to go halfway. And then once I get halfway to the other side, I have to go halfway again. And then I have to go halfway again, and so on and so on. And I'll never reach the other side. Of course, you will. Duration is what it means to live and experience. And of course, you'll get to the other side. And our conception of time shouldn't just be one distinct moment changing to the next distinct moment, but it should be viewed more as a flow. A good example is a movie. You can take a movie and you can look at it frame by frame, but this is not a movie. The movie must be seen as a flow, a duration. You can take the movie The Godfather and look at it one frame at a time, but that does not capture what The Godfather film is all about. And as such, pure determination, the belief that one thing causes another, and this determination, pure determination, covers all and everything, all manifestations. Well, Bergson believed that was a bogus concept, that there's a whole field of activity going on here, which includes, not saying there's no such thing as cause and effect, but it also includes creativity and free will. These are part of the, the field that's going on here, and a degree of randomness. This is life itself. Now, Bergson was contemporaneous to Einstein, as I've said, and he even held a debate with him. And he was aware that Einstein lumped space and time together into space-time. But as I mentioned, Einstein's universe is a four-dimensional block universe. And as we've talked about here, this is a dead universe, dead like a stone. There's no freedom at all. This is not the world that we sense around us. We can feel our freedom. We can feel alive. For Bergson, duration was qualitative, not quantitative. And that's a big difference. It was a temporal heterogeneity in which he says, quote, several conscious states are organized into a whole and they permeate one another and gradually gain a richer content, end quote. Now, he provides a very good uh, picture of how to, how to look at this concept of duration. And picture two, two spools that are separated by a distance, say a foot or so, and there's a tape running between them. And the tape is coming from the spool on the right and is being wound up into the spool on the left. The important thing about this image is that the tape is continuous. There's, it's not a bunch of separate bits. And we experience the whole duration of the portion of the tape that we see. And this also brings us to an important concept of memory, which is symbolized by the spool on the left. The spool on the right is the future. The tape we see is the present. And the spool on the left is the past. And it's the spool on the right, the future that, that, that comes, pushes the tape to the present and then into the past. But the key thing here is the spool on the right, the future is not written yet. We are actively determining what goes on the tape we see, that part of the duration that becomes part of the past. And, and this influences us now. And the choices we make now influence what comes at us from the spool on the right. So the spool on the right is open. It's open to what choices we make in the, in the durational moment uh, of the present and also what, what has occurred in the past. 
Now, another good example is the color wheel. You've all seen these color wheels. Decorators use them. Colors cannot really be separate and distinct. They all flow into each other. They all have a little bit more blue, a little bit more gray. And from that, you know, thousands and millions of colors can be, can be generated. You'll get one section of greens, and then they slowly will morph into the next color. On a personal note, this is a funny story. When I was in the first grade, we were being taught how to read and write. And one of the first things we had to do was learn how to write the names of the colors. And if you could write all seven colors down, when you, you would get a color crown, which is a crown which had the seven colors on them. Now, I had a hard time with this because it wasn't that the reading and writing was so difficult. I had a hard time saying that, that there were actually seven different colors. I saw a spectrum of, of different shades. And the teacher was presenting them as absolute distinct entities with a name, where I saw flow, a gradual flow from one color to another. Of course, I didn't recognize that. I didn't express it that way at the time, but I just sort of balked at the exercise because something inside of me was rebelling. Now, as an adult and looking back, I, I see what the problem was. Time is the same way. We experience the flow, the whole gestalt. It never stops becoming. And this is central to Hegelianism as we know it. Hegel puts becoming at the center of his science of logic and further with his Vernunft and Verstand, Hegel shows the difference between left brain thinking and right brain reasoning. The left brain breaks things down into parts and misses the big picture. The right brain sees the whole, the duration. As the Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards says, it's not just the rock, it's the roll as well. And we did a whole episode on Vernunft and Verstand last year, episode 21. So please check that out if you haven't listened to it already. Music is another great example of duration, speaking of the Rolling Stones. It is not just note by note that makes a song. It is the duration of the melody, the harmony, the rhythm, the point, counterpoint, the bridge that all fits together in the duration of the song. That's the song we remember and we'll stick in our head and we'll sing in the shower. Okay, let's move on to another key component of Bergson's philosophy, and that is intuition. And by intuition here, Bergson believes that this is how one understands duration. He, he does not feel one can understand duration by immobile concepts or by uh, specific words put together. Intuition is knowing things in themselves. It is right brain knowing. It is not some abstraction of things. He uses an example of a city. You can look at pictures of a city. You can look at a map of a city. But you can never know the city until you go there and walk around, go to the restaurants, see people, etc., go to the shops. And I've used here before the example of the map and the territory. The left brain is the map, whereas the right brain is walking around on the land, walking on the territory, experiencing the land in, in, in reality. The right brain is intuitive wholeness. The left brain is detail. The right brain is experience. The left brain is analysis. As a reminder, for more of right brain, left brain dichotomy, please see episode 10, The Divided Brain and the Unhappy Consciousness. Now, let's move to the third important concept of Bergson's, that of Elan Vital, or the creative impulse. And this is essentially Bergson's reaction to blind random Darwinism. And we've discussed my objection to this narrow view of evolution here before. I, 
I discussed this particularly in episode 26, titled Teleology, Evolution, Aristotle, and Hegel. And again, just like me, Bergson is not rejecting Darwinism, and, but it just he believes that there's more going on than blind random mutation and survival, as do I. And this is also a similar thing that happened with Bergson's debate with Einstein. He did not agree with any of the mathematics behind Einstein's theory. He wasn't trying to prove Einstein's mathematics or physics were wrong. It's just he felt there was much more going on than, than what Einstein was uh, proposing. And, and he got into the thing of simultaneity and you know the, the fact that time slows down when you're traveling faster toward the speed of light, etc. So it wasn't just a naive review of Einstein. It was very detailed. Now, by Alain Vital, Bergson claims that there's an initial impulse, a life force, a vital life force that exists in the universe. And while he does not use this term, it is similar to Hegel's Geist. He believes in this concept because a purely mechanical view would offer no real positive change. It would just be a reorganization of existing parts. It's hard to explain how we would get here ourselves through blind random mutation alone. And Ilan Vital is, is, a, is a way to, to explain this. And Charles Pierce also held a similar view. And what's importantly, though, that it, although this sounds like purposeful, it's not like there's some end state that, that is visualized by some foreign entity. It, it, no, it's just that there is pure creativity in the present moment. And the, the telos of life, Bergson contends, is in the origin, not in the end of life. To put this in, in Hegelian terms, is for spirit to know itself. That's the purpose. That's the goal. That's the drive. That's what's pushing us forward. And um, it is this goal that is taken up. And other than this goal, there is no ended, ending imagined. It, it's not like, oh, we're going to all end up in heaven and and never die and never... No, there's not one end state. It's a continual process. And it's a, a continual process of, of a pursuit of greater freedom and consciousness. Life is creation. This is fundamental for Hegel and for Bergson, as well as Pierce. Bergson considers novelty as a result of pure, uninhibited, undetermined creativity. This is his concept of Elan Vital. Now let's move on to another important notion of his memory. Memory is a very important part of his philosophy, and it also ties into much of what we've been covering uh, over the last several years in this podcast. He wrote about memory in his second principal book, Matter and Memory, published in 1896. He identifies two types of memory. One is more the result of habit formation, this is more bodily muscle memory, if you will. The second is more transcendent and reaches into the past. And importantly, not only of the individual, but the past of the group, the species, all the way back to the universe itself. Now, the second type of memory is very consistent with what we have been discussing before, in particular, Jung's collective unconscious. We discussed the storehouse of memory in detail in episode 56. In that episode, I detailed how the collective memory is not just Jung's idea, but it was also embraced by Plato and also more currently by sociologists Emile Durkheim and Maurice Halvax and philosopher Charles Pierce. 
And even the Eastern concept of reincarnation implies a storehouse of memory that exists as a reality. New Age thinking, New Age thinkers refer to it as the Akashic Records, Rudolf Steiner and people like that. And we've also discussed here several times contemporary biologist Rupert Sheldrake and his notion of morphic residence, that, me that memory is, plays such an important role in this and, and is something we can all tap into. But back to Bergson. In matter and memory, Bergson used the image of an inverted cone with the tip of the cone touching a two-dimensional plane and the body of the cone rising above the plane and increasing in size. Now, the plane represents our finite plane of existence. The cone represents the impact of memory on us in the present moment. But it also shows the memories we are able to access as we move deeper up the body of the cone. And of course, the cone expands as the memories expand, as we go deeper and deeper. Memories of our own life and that go beyond our own life, to that of our, our species, all life, and the universe itself. Let me quote Simon Sullivan on this quote. This is a memory that is more neutral and ultimately apersonal. We might even say inhuman in that it is not selective or connected to the needs of the organism as the latter exists on the plane of matter. It is less memory as such than a general pastness. Ultimately, it is also a species memory or even a kind of cosmic memory of the universe in that it extends far beyond the individual, end quote. Again, this is similar to a lot of what we covered with uh, Charles Pierce. Let me quote Bergson himself on this, quote, For that a recollection should appear in consciousness, it is necessary that it should descend from the heights of pure memory down to the precise point where action is taking place. In other words, it is from the present that the appeal to which memory responds comes, and it is from the sensory motor elements of present action that a memory borrows the warmth which gives it life, end quote. So as you can see, so much of Bergson's philosophy is in sync with the tenets presented in the podcast over the last few years. Now, one last point I want to cover, and this is on humor. Bergson is one of the very few philosophers who actually was brave enough to address the subject of humor. Uh, he wrote this in a, in a book, Laughter, an Essay on the Meaning of the Comic, published in 1900. Hegel was also one of the brave few. He discussed humor briefly, and I'm not going to get into it here, but I point you to a wonderful paper by Martin Donahoe entitled Hegelian Comedy, in which he states that Hegel, in fact, anticipated Bergson in terms of his view on what makes something funny. But moving back to Bergson and comedy, as an interesting aside, as I was preparing for this episode, I recalled that my daughter Jacqueline, who's a comic herself, had mentioned she had done some independent study of Bergson. So in, in preparation, I followed up with her and asked her what she recalled of, the, of that study. Here's what she wrote back to me, and, and she asked that her words be taken as not formal. Quote, what I got from Bergson, what struck with me, was that he suggests that people laugh when, say, the one person in the tribe is behaving in a way that's rigidly mechanical and unconscious, in favor of consciously and adaptively. This is the key distinction, or duality, he considers, rigidity slash mechanical versus conscious, transcending, and adaptiveness. He carries this idea through on all levels, 
rigidity of movement, rigidity of ideas, and it can occur on the micro level within a single sentence or joke, or on a macro level, the comedic conceit of an entire creative work, or the humor of a character. He suggests that the greatness of humans lies in rising above unconsciousness, being able to adapt to scenarios, and take conscious action accordingly. He says that's why drama is made up of action, while comedy is made up of gesture. Gesture versus action is unconscious, rigid in the sense that it repeats mechanically, is the same each time. The body is, of course, more mechanical by nature than the spirit, and when attention is drawn toward the spirit, it is beautiful and serious, i.e. ballet. But when one is suddenly made aware of the rigidity inherent in the body, it becomes comedic. And if you go from the spirit to the sudden attention drawn to the body, it will provoke the laugh. Bergson gives an example of a eulogy. If it is said, he was virtuous and plump, it's funny because of that order. He points out that impressions are funny because the moment we see an impressionist do an impression of whomever, we suddenly realize the mechanical nature of the original person. And of all people, the fact that a series of repeatable gestures can call to mind the person in question reveals how mechanical they are. Many jokes function by the sudden reveal of a rigidity in thinking. The logic in the setup is rigidly carried too far into the punchline. Comedian Mitch Hedberg jokes are great examples, masterful, such as, I like the escalator, man, because the escalator cannot break. It just becomes stairs. It reveals to us suddenly our rigidity in that we would look at what are perfectly good stairs and see only a broken escalator. Performance is relevant, too, as the way something is said is itself a gesture and contributes to a sense of the particular type of unconscious thinking happening, end quote. So that's some of what my daughter said. And I think this is a perfect example of right-brain vernunft, of creativity, freedom, and flow, breaking through to the left-brain verstand of rigidity. This is what creates a humorous situation. Real life penetrates into the fixed and unreal. To me... Humor is a breakthrough of the right-brain reasoning into the stubborn rigidity of left-brain thinking, and we find it funny because it is real. So, let me summarize all that we've covered here. And I'm just really scratching the surface here. Uh, maybe we'll visit Bergson again in the future. But Bergson was a brilliant philosopher brought to light many things we've been discussing in the podcast over the last few years. His notion of duration really captures the essence of how we perceive the passage of time, not a string together bunch of moments, but as a continuous flow. His notion of intuition corresponds directly to right brain reasoning, which we've frequently covered. His elan vital is another word for Geist, the spirit that moves us all. His views on memory are consistent with all we've covered here on Jung's collective unconscious. And in discussing humor, he shows how comedy comes from the right-brain reasoning of real life interfering with our habitual left-brain unconscious behaviors. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You know, I've learned so much in preparing these episodes, and, and hopefully some of it is rubbing off to you listeners as well. So thank you again for, for loyally staying with me. And please like and follow the podcast Facebook page, at Cunningham Geist. I often post there every day or so, and I try to link in what other people have said on the topic of the, the most recent episode. You can also follow me on Twitter, also at Cunning of Geist. 
And I will be posting all references cited here on the Facebook page shortly after this episode drops. And be sure to tell your like-minded friends about the Cunning of Guys podcast. Spread the word. So, this is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.